Hello, friends. Your regular episode of Long in the Boot will be coming up in just a moment. But first, I wanted to go ahead and let you know that we recorded the Long in the Boot hurricane episode a couple days ago. And at the time, we didn't realize that the stalker, otherwise known as Laura, was going to pull a Rita and come in at the mouth of the Sabine River as a Category 3 or Category 4. Probably a four, simply because a three seems redundant. We've had one of those. What we really need is an upgrade. And Laura looks like she may provide that. Hard to say. However, either way it goes, I wanted to let you know that when we're talking about the hurricane, we were unaware that we were going to be whammied by Laura at the time we were talking. I hope everybody stays safe. Everybody hunker down, get those generators filled up. And if you haven't got gas yet, uh, you may have a little trouble finding it today. Today is Tuesday. This podcast will go out tomorrow, or actually it'll go out tonight at midnight, and then we'll see what happens. But until then, everybody stay safe, everybody hunker down, and we'll see you on the other side here at Long in the Boot. Thanks for listening. Warning. The Long in the Boot podcast contains sarcasm, irony, logic, and occasional facts. Opinions expressed by guests of Long in the Boot are those of the individual and do not reflect the opinions of any corporate or government entity. Due to the use of freedom of expression and those other pesky God-given rights, adult supervision is recommended. Please listen thoughtfully. Welcome to Long in the Boot. I'm your host, Glenn Long, coming to you from the heel of the boot of Louisiana, also known as Southwest Louisiana. And depending on what happens here in the next few days, maybe the heel will be gone. Who knows? I am joined today by Mr. Bryant Habits. How you doing, Bryant? Living it, living it, loving it. Yeah, it's a it's 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 kind of a weird moment right now. We're all we're all waiting, but uh before we get into stuff, don't forget the website www.alongintheboot.com, the phone number 337-502-9011, and my email of which I got a few this week is longintheboot at gmail.com. And uh in fact, one of the emails I got was from a former student by the name of Shay and she had a great idea for a future podcast, which was to talk about the movie industry in Louisiana and how it's grown. And that was actually a really, really good idea because it is a big part of Louisiana income now with the revenue. Oh, we got some good tax breaks. Oh, Who yeah. wants to come out here? We're Hollywood South now. Well, I know a few people that have actually gotten some work with the movie industry in Louisiana. And, of course, they've shot quite a number of things. We talked about the uh, the Tom Hanks movie not too long ago. That a lot of it was shot in Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. We had, of course, the infamous television series True Blood. Oh, <laughs> it was so bad you couldn't stop watching it. I I just liked the distance thing they could pull off in True Blood. Okay, we're in New Orleans. We've got to be in Shreveport in three minutes. Go. <laughs> yeah, we go right up the road to Monroe. And you know they're in Shreveport, where there's cypress swamps everywhere, and yeah. people are sweating, and they have a million different accents. Ugh. Yeah, and they're outside and not being bitten by mosquitoes ever. That's where the True Blood is going. Well, you those would, are the real vampires. You would think the mosquitoes would have had a field day. Oh, yeah. In that area. Vampires could have just like rounded them up and boiled them <laughs> like mealworms. <laughs> Mosquito gumbo. Mm, yummy. 
Well, um, of course, uh, school has finally started, and we have students coming where I work this week. Uh, you've already had students, I understand. For two weeks. How's the hybrid model going? It depends on what your goal for education is. <clears throat> but as always, Beauregard Parish is going to be the vanguard of education. We are going. We don't have it figured out, but we're just going. We have been told multiple different things because as the top gets information, they'll get new information. So at first, they're like, all right, you're going to have students four days a week. They're only going to have you two days a week, but you're going to treat it like you have them all four. So you will teach something new every day, and there will be some way for them to get it every other day online. They've been running around this not overly metropolitan area by putting out hotspots and stuff so people can have internet access. Now they're realizing that it doesn't reach. So they said everything you put online, you have to put on paper and everything you say on a day, you also need to teach on B day. So now we are teaching two days a week, but twice a week. Right. That's sort of similar to what we, we we've been told. Basically we'll have the kids two days a week. The other two days they need to have something associated to the face-to-face days that they mm-hmm. can work on. We don't necessarily have to contact them on those days. Yeah. And then Friday is a day for everything to come together. Of course, what that means is those kids you see on Wednesday, you don't see again until Monday. Yes. And that is a bit of a problem, I think, for me. Yeah, that's a, a wicked gap. That is huge. And, uh, and of course, state of Tuesday, trying it? to stay on top of everything else with the masks. and Because I've had kids, I can't, I, I've had kids where I couldn't get them to keep their pants pulled up. So I'm not sure how the whole forcing masks. Yeah, they told us it was... In finger quotes, because you can't see these, because this is online. Right. You know, this is. Uh, He's he is making finger, finger quotes. quotes. I have I have a trust a witness. me on this. They said to wear them as often as possible, and they were at teacher discretion on in the classroom, like in the hallway. You got to wear them. Uh, right. When you get to school, you got to wear them. And in the mandatory piling ups in the gym, you got to wear them. But when you get in the classroom, up to the teacher's discretion. I know some of them are like, well, if I've got double digit kids. They got to wear them. And if, you know, if we're having a discussion, they can take them down to where you're not muffled and all that. I'm kind of glad I'm at a smaller school. I think that's going to help a little bit. I think numbers certainly make a difference. Yeah. They have several teachers that spoken around, like, you know, my wife and I, not included, that their biggest class is not double digits in person. Right. It's not. I've got, we, we, I've got, we're we're pushing 20. My largest class will be 10 kids. Yeah. I've got 19, I think. That's My wife's got 18, 19 in most classes. Which, t- which shows you how big your class would have been. And, yeah, so if they're <laughs> – The room would have been go, stuffed with kids. things go according to plan and we go back to normal and bring everybody back as a big happy family, we may very well be bursting at the seams. We got uh, schools – got that checked off our list. We have uh, the election this week. We had the, the Democratic Convention all done – well, kind of like school in a way. Yeah, it was like a it was like a convention Zoom meeting, and that's <laughs> uh, bizarre. It's like watching a professional sports games now. They got like holograms. I will say I'm not a huge fan of any of it. Uh, I'm not a fan of either one of the presidential candidates. However, Biden, I will say I watched the speech uh, after the fact. I didn't stay up to watch it, obviously, but because. Uh, I mean, old man, I go to bed at 5 p.m. Yeah, but, uh, I'm surprised he stayed up to watch it. And, uh, well, I think whatever they give him to get him up and going, it was it, maybe a double dose because he seemed to be pretty wide-eyed and clear-headed All right. for the length of the speech. And, you know, so that's that's a good thing. So if they could just keep that up, 
then permanently eventually his heart will explode, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's rough on the old ticker. Last week, I tried to get people to call in to tell me what they thought of uh, his pres- vice presidential candidate. I know what people I talk to think in this area. Now, of course, it's different depending on where you go. But uh, I think uh, I think the people here were not overly interested. Probably not. <laughs> Biden picked. I, yeah. I, I haven't run into a lot of vocal Biden supporters. No, I haven't. I've never met one. Not not in this region. I don't travel a whole lot these days. Yeah, nobody does, right? In these in these uncertain times. Uncertain times. Stay safe. And so enough about the election. We'll I'm sure have more to talk about as we get closer to November and it goes all weird. Well, while we are recording this, there are two potential hurricanes that could strike Louisiana. Now, this is the fun part. We don't actually know whether or not that will occur. In a way, it's much like Schrodinger's cat. And if you don't know what that is, ha, look it up because I'm not going to explain it. But we will or won't get hit by two hurricanes. We will or won't get hit by one hurricane. Totally up in the air. I don't know. We don't know. By the time this is actually out there, we probably will. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. By the time this airs, the answer will be clear. Yes. And that kind of makes it fun. So we could theoretically do the podcast and just pretend everything's been destroyed and act like Ah, humanity. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. I'm looking out right now on a sea of water. There's a cow floating by. (laughs) But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Marco and Laura, if you're keeping score. And of course, the media is just so excited right now by the potential death and destruction. That's always fun. <laughs> they, they really do get just giddy when this kind of stuff comes oh, up. Oh, yeah. I woke up this morning. There was a notification. Louisiana to get hit by two hurricanes at the same time? Maybe. Or something like, ooh, yeah, spicy. Oh, yeah. oh, crap. I live in Louisiana. That's not good. And uh, of course, you know, who knows? We, 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 have, we have hurricanes from time to time. We haven't had a big one. Since, in a little while. Since, what, 05, I guess, really. Katrina was the big one. That's mm-hmm. the one that gets all the press. That's the bell of the ball, so to speak. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see what happens with hurricanes. We got some interesting. We'll talk about Katrina for just a second. We were going to do the hurricane show, and I wanted to talk about several hurricanes, but then I realized that, really, what I'm more interested in is hurricanes before there was news uh, to speak of. That, you know, nowadays, hurricanes are like a slow-moving car. Yeah, most people aren't very scared of something that you get several days warning and it moves five miles an hour. A deadly lawnmower is what we're facing. Right, and and you know it's coming, and you have time to get in a car and get away and go to some friend's house somewhere else and hope that you pick the right direction to go. Yeah, make whatever preps you can for your <laughs> homestead. I know that uh, with Katrina, I know some people actually vacated where they lived thinking it was going to hit in one place. And they fled to New Orleans. Right directly into it. And it got right in front of it. So it's like, well, it's like the deer at night. Yeah. I'm going to dodge those head. Boom. Nope. <laughs> squirrels. Squirrels are the best. Oh, yeah. Pick a side. <laughs> nope. That's the dead side. And, and of course, armadillos jump straight up. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with them. <laughs> they're, they're Texans. Yeah. It's the silliest things. Uh, armored rats. That's what they are. Katrina, obviously the big hurricane for Louisiana back in 2005, anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 people dead. But there's not a lot of reason to talk about Katrina simply because it's been covered to death. It really has. It has been analyzed in every possible way. But I did want to play one little clip because you cannot have a hurricane 
today without Jim Cantore showing up. If Jim Cantore doesn't show up, there's no hurricane, or at least no danger. Um, Jim Cantore is required at any location that might be destroyed by a potential hurricane. And uh, Cantore was in New Orleans uh, before Katrina hit, and he uh, he had a little bit, a little bit of advice for some people uh, who didn't vacate the premises before it hit. And I always thought I kind of kind of like it because he gets so serious towards the end. We will keep you posted in this area as things are surely going to go downhill with this very dangerous Category Five hurricane. Mike and Sharon, back to you. Jim, real quick, what advice would you give folks who did not evacuate? Uh, I need to, I need them to get down on their knees tonight, and they need to say, Lord, you know what? Uh, you need to save me and my family because, quite frankly, I, I didn't do a good thing by staying in harm's way, especially especially if they are in a house that certainly cannot withstand 170-mile-per-hour winds and waves that will come in in the tune of 25 feet. All That's right, what Jim. I do. We'll talk with you later. Thank you. Okay. And that was Jim Cantori basically saying if you stayed in the way of Katrina before it hit, you're an idiot. I think my chair is squeaking. It is. I thought you had a cat. I thought I had a cat, too. Well, I do have a cat, but it's outside. Uh, Either that or I'm sitting on a cat. I'm not sure which. If I'm sitting on a cat, I would assume it would try to fight back at least a little. Yeah, you got a little bit of squeakage. With their their murder mittens. (laughs) So Katrina hit and caused all kinds of problems. Of course, it really wasn't the hurricane that caused the majority of the damage with Katrina. It was the levees failing and... Everybody getting the blame for that. The hearings in Congress went on forever. Yeah, it took a while. The FEMA director, who had previously been a breeder of horses, who had been picked by Bush to be head of FEMA, that famous scene of Bush going, Brownie, you're doing a good job. And uh, he was a week later, he was gone. (laughs) (laughs) And he wrote a book later trying to basically say, I was was hung out to dry by everybody. They played all the blame on me. Well, you know. That was the first time I ever heard of FEMA. It was back then, but I was just a young buck. That was my first semester of college when I got a hurricane double whammy after being in school for two weeks. Well, that's what was crazy that year. Katrina Katrina happened, and lots of people streamed out of New Orleans, headed to different places, including Lake Charles. Houston yeah. took in a huge number of refugees at the uh, Astrodome, which turned into a major problem for Houston for a while. Uh, there was, of course, the the whole thing with the Superdome, and was it or was it not an absolute catastrophe for a while? It was, it was like gross. They were murdering people inside, and thousands are dead. And it turned out <clears throat> there was, was a couple in deaths, yeah. and but the big problem was their toilets backed up. Yeah, it was just gross. It was like anything that you think about Bourbon Street as far as cleanliness, it was like funneled into a dome. It was, yeah. it was gross. It is. It's pretty nasty to think about. Um, the idea that they said, "Well, well, we'll do this. We'll put them all in the Superdome, but the water doesn't work." <laughs> other than that we got it made <laughs> it's brilliant um and then of course they uh they brought in <laughs> get some get some wd-40 I'm, I'm gonna have to get some wd-40 and maybe some some mineral oil some all some three in one and fix that squeak because it's driving me crazy anyway um the uh the storm for everything all the news meet and everything else and we all went whoo it missed thank goodness and then a month later, Rita shows up, says, well, you know what? We got the toe of the boot. Let's go for the heel. Now. Let's go for the heel. And sure enough, Rita comes flying in. And Rita was a tricky one, though, because we were all told it was going to go to Houston. Everybody oh, yeah. in this area was like, oh, it's going to miss. Not a problem. And then one morning we woke up. And back then, the newsman that you always listened to was Rob Robin. I loved Rob Robin. When I... uh 
when I worked years ago for Kicks 96 News, I always followed Rob or I always uh, led Rob Robin. I would always finish everything with that's the Kicks 96 News. Rob Robin has your weather next. Good evening, friends. This is Rob Robin. Hello, friends. And uh, he would go into the thing, but he was good. He was extremely good at forecasting the weather. And he kept saying every forecast, he goes, now I'm watching this ridge and there's kind of a hole that could travel into the area. And if it does, this thing's going to turn more to the right. Sure enough. And sure enough, he nailed it. I mean, he called it a day ahead. And at that point, everybody just fled. And I mean, fled. The roads were choked. Uh, Highway 171 from Lake Charles to Shreveport was non-moving. Yeah. I stayed out of the heel of the boot for quite a while after that. So, like, we were – I was in Baton Rouge for Katrina because I was in school at the time. And, you know, we had a bunch of nuns come from New Orleans. We had a flock of nuns. There were, like, 15 (laughs) nuns invaded the heel. And they came and stayed with various members of of the household. And they were there until they're like, hey, there's another hurricane coming right now to right where we are. And they're like, well, okay. Let's flock back the other way. And I had had refugees in my Baton Rouge apartment for Rita. I'm still picturing a flock of nuns. It was a ton of them <laughs> flocking around, little like penguins. And uh, these were nuns. They were Carmelite nuns, so they're like brown penguins. They had the little brown habits on instead of the black ones. And, uh, yeah, they took off. And I had refugees at my house in Baton Rouge. And Rita hit and right along Sabine in Texas. And my uncle came and stayed at my house in Baton Rouge, and a tree got knocked onto his car in Baton Rouge. So, <laughs> well, we had, these storms are big. Oh, yeah, they're huge. And, and people from other areas of the country who have never experienced the, the, the love that is a hurricane um, don't have really kind of, kind of a concept of how big these things are. We, we left for Rita. We, we finally we had a, a friend that lived in uh, Pearl, Mississippi, near Jackson. Mm-hmm. We said, we're going to go there. And as you all might not realize it normally doesn't take 16 hours to drive to Pearl, Mississippi from yeah. here. No. And it did. And it was horrible. It was bumper to bumper really for a long way until I finally said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm taking off. We're going to hit side roads. Yeah. And I had a road map. This is all, of course, you know, nobody had Google maps. Mm-mm. So I got out a map and I started looking for little tiny side roads and my kids were in another car following us. My daughter was old enough to drive. In fact, her homecoming week was wrecked because of Rita. Yep. And uh, and she was on the homecoming court, so I I think I think really I suffered the most. Oh uh, God, yeah, you had to buy all the stuff and then you get to use it. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so we all the way to Jackson. We find our Pearl. We finally get there. We're we're exhausted. We lay down, and all of a sudden, outside you hear the air raid sirens go off, mm-hmm. and I'm like, so I, I assume it's a tornado warning. My son wakes up, and goes, Dad, what's that? I said, it's no big deal, son. The Japanese are simply attacking. It is the Luftwaffe. Go back to sleep. And we just hoped that a tornado wouldn't hit us. But if it had, eh, it wouldn't have mattered at that point. We were so exhausted. Nothing you can do. And uh, and it, of course, didn't. It did a lot of damage, Rita did. But it was a fast-moving, dry hurricane overall. Yeah, it didn't just, like, dump buckets. Yeah, it didn't stay in one place. And... But it did cause a lot of damage north. I, we, when we came back after, I don't know, six days and did did what everybody else did, put our refrigerator outside and cleaned it up. Yeah. And uh, de, de, uh, fumigated it. Yeah. Power was out over here forever. Power, power was out here for three weeks. Water was, Water out, was for out for a good long while, too. And then somebody kept stealing the they had generators to run the water and they got stolen once. Wow. 
because, you know, people are selfish. Yep. And so we went up north to Missouri. And if we had known this at the time, I, w- I would have loved it. But apparently at that point, if you stopped in Branson and went to Silver Dollar City after Rita, you got in free. They, put, they, they put you up free. A nice refugee discount. Yeah, That's I know. awesome. I had no idea. I bypassed Branson, went all the way up to Kansas City. I know. Dumb. <laughs> and then finally, I just kept calling uh, uh, people, and, and I had a, another teacher that lives close by come and check to see if the power was back on where we live because you couldn't really – it was hard to get back here. Yeah. And when they said power's back on, we were like, well, let's go home. <laughs> and that was that. And it wasn't even the fact that they didn't have power. It was so hot and humid, but it was also love bug season. Oh, yeah. So you had to leave your windows open. God, yeah. Then those things are just. They're nasty. Annoying. And they stink. They stink so bad. F up your paint, John. They're gross. (laughs) By the way, if you live up north, please, I encourage you to come on down and get a cup full of love bugs and take them back with you. Maybe we can thin them out a little bit. Good God. Yeah. They're nasty. And they're out now, by the way. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, Another, uh, but what general, uh, Honore, who was the guy that they really finally tapped to fix new Orleans after Katrina was dealing with Rita also, because a lot of the people who had left new Orleans came to Lake Charles and then they were threatened by Rita. So they had to go back, but there was no place to go back to. Yeah. And so they were putting them in the convention center and they kept asking general Honore all kinds of stupid questions. And he's from Louisiana and I loved his, uh, how he dealt with the reporters. And uh, I, I clipped that because I think it's well worth hearing a Louisiana military officer dealing with stupidity. And we'll move them on. Let's not get stuck on the last storm. You're asking last storm questions for people who are concerned about the future storm. Don't get stuck on stupid, reporters. We're moving forward. And don't confuse the people, please. You're a part of the public message. So help us get the message straight. And if you don't understand it, maybe it confuses to the people. That's why we like the follow-up questions. But right now, it's the convention center and move on. Can you just understand a little bit more about why that's happening this time, though, and did not happen last time? You are stuck on stupid. I'm not going to answer that question. We've got to deal with Rita. This is public information that people are depending on the government to put out. This is the way we got to do it. So please, I apologize to you, but let's talk about the future. Rita is happening. Right now, we need to get good, clean information out to the people that they can use. And we can have a conversation on the side about the past a few months from now. Okay. Okay. Do we have a question down here on the? <laughs> you hear the other reporters laughing at the guy. <laughs> I know. You know, it was a, he was must have been embarrassed. Uh-huh. I like that. I like how the general, though, after calling him stupid, said, "We can have a conversation about it later." Yeah. <laughs> but, I apologize. Don't get stuck on stupid. <laughs> right then, he sounded like every Cajun I ever met. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. I loved it. Then finally, uh, the the last hurricane that I'm just going to mention before we get into the the one that's the most fun is Harvey or <clears throat> Harvey, and <laughs> that's the worst Jimmy Stewart ever. Uh, anyway, uh, the I know, and most people don't even have any concept of why that's even remotely amusing. <laughs> and uh, but uh, Harvey was the the storm that. It, it was a hurricane, granted, but it wasn't the winds that were the major oh, problem. Oh, no. This thing was thick. It didn't move. Once it came inland, it just hung out. It's like it sucked up the whole gulf. It was like, here you go, Texas. And <laughs> just, it just slowly deposited it over and over. And it just, oh, God. And it was the craziest thing because 
Okay, we're we're where I'm located. We're what about twenty miles from the Texas border? Yeah, we're pretty close. And I have friends that live in Vider, Texas, and just north of Vider, Texas, who are you know maybe thirty miles away, forty miles away, and they got like twenty inches of rain. And here, it yeah, we got a little bit of rain. Well, they canceled school, and you know everybody's always like canceled school for nothing. The storm didn't even do nothing. I was like, did you look at Texas? Yeah, the thirty miles to the west, it did it, something. It did something. We had a friend that uh, she lost her farm. She had to burn all of her animals once she went back because of uh, the floodwaters killed all of her farm animals. Uh, and we had friends in Rockport, Texas, that their their trailer that they lived in down there, close to the beach too, close to Port Aransas, really, uh, was fine. But it was getting to it, all the debris and all the nails. That's always a thing. If you're not from this part of the country, when you have a hurricane that rips lots and lots and lots of roofs off, you have lots and lots and lots of nails deposited all over the highway Yeah, and, and tires. Oh, my Lord. The number of popped tires is ridiculous. That happened after Rita, too. When we drove north, there were people all over the place pulling over, having to repair a tire, uh, driving up through uh, Texas. Oh, my goodness. Because Jasper actually caught it bad, the wind. When Rita came through, it, they they actually had it worse than we did. Here is nothing. I, I mean, I live in a mobile home, and the skirting was taken off. Yeah, I think my parents had some roof damage. The big issue over here was the logistics because you had no power, no water. Right, and 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 it was miserably hot. Yuck! Nobody likes that. the The end result of Hurricane Harvey, with all of the flooding and everything else, the big thing that came out of Hurricane Harvey was the, I guess, the growth of the Cajun Navy. Yeah. The Cajun Navy ends up becoming really heroes because yeah, of all the rain. This, you know, it's like one of the really good things about the South, the helping your neighbor. And we're sitting over there because, you know, at first we were nervous that that storm was going to come shellac us because we got a pretty decent memory of those other two that came in aught five. Oh, sure. So there, you know, when it went next door, they're like, dude, I got boats. And it's, I mean, this is everywhere. Interstate had like. 15 or 20 feet of, you know, in certain spots of water. Oh yeah. So, just, I mean, just going to, to orange boat. Texas was yet needed a boat. And uh, what I was really amazed at was the, the video from the news of the line of boats, just dozens and dozens and dozens of people just going to get and rescue people from Houston, from Beaumont bridge city. I mean, yeah. it, there was there so much lots. rain and it was just, buckets and harvey harvey just literally stayed in one place and kind of just meandered and you're thinking man eventually it's going to run out of water but no kept on pounding tropical storms are amazing the end result was the cajun navy became an an institution really and now i think see it every now and then it'll pop back up yeah i think now people will expect it they had one they had a storm in louisiana i think it was in march and uh there was a lot of flooding in natchitoches Right. And I know because a, a friend of mine's brother was a head basketball coach for them, and they were playing in like the state tournament. He went with his boat to go pick up his players on a boat to go get them to be able to bring them to their ball game in uh, Lake Charles. <laughs> nice. So it's like we're making things happen, man. These people with a boat, now you can do something other than recreation. Yeah. And, and they do it. And in fact, when we were in school uh, watching what was happening in Texas, there were people that I, I had students that, had family members that were getting their boats together, getting their stuff and fixing to head to Texas. Mm -hmm. But again, we always have warnings. We all nowadays we have warnings. These two uh, hurricanes that are heading toward us. Now we know they're there. We know they're coming this direction. We don't know, you know what the end situation will be, but 
everybody knows they're coming. Everybody can prepare. You can leave. You can do all kinds of things. But there are there is a one hurricane in particular that hit the Gulf Coast back in 1900 or 19 double aught double aught <laughs> in uh, September, the prime time for Gulf Coast hurricanes. And that is, of course, the Galveston Storm of 1900. No name, just the Galveston Storm of 1900. It was a beast. And yes, it was a beast. It's the hurricane that is considered the biggest natural disaster still that has ever hit the United States. Nothing's really come close. I was looking to see numbers-wise in no. nothing. I mean, it's like you pick, like Katrina was a big deal, but That's there was 2,000 max. They didn't get blindsided with it. You get blindsided with something like this, and the conditions are just right. There is nothing you're going to be able to do about it. Right. And as we will see later, <laughs> the uh, the Galveston the Galveston storm was made famous in Eric Larson's book, Isaac's Storm. And Isaac's Storm details the events leading up to the Galveston storm and also talks about Isaac Klein, who was the head of the Weather Bureau office in Galveston, Texas. We didn't have a National Weather Service yet. We had a Weather Bureau. We were working on it. It was heading that way, just like anything else in 1900. We we were it was a baby steps. We're starry eyed, man. We're dreaming in the future. Is a 20th century about to start? And, time to do new things. Well, and Galveston was a 20th century kind of town for 1900. I mean, when you actually look at what Galveston had, because it was a major port. Houston was not a major port city yet. No, everything stopped in Galveston, and Galveston had electric lights. The whole city was lit up. They had trolley cars. Yeah, it was. This was like you know, almost like Atlantic City became later. I mean, this was it could had potential at the time. It was in the running for being one of the most major hotspots of the South. Oh yeah, and and it it was a stopping point. People came to Galveston purposely to set up, you know, put down roots. Yeah, it's not like it is now. Which I mean, it's like a tourist place now. But like then, it was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. 40,000 people living there, which in nineteen hundred was a fairly good sized town. Yeah, and it was certainly like again, like I said, a, a port city that brought in millions of dollars and, and millions and millions of tons of of s- supplies and produce and just everything. Everything went to Galveston. Galveston was a jewel on the Gulf Coast. That's how it was referred to in several of the things that I read about it. Yeah. And that's brought to light very much by by Eric Larson. And uh, but I want to talk about his uh, not so much his book, but a couple people from his book uh, that come to come to kind of represent what happened to Galveston. And the first one, of course, is Isaac Klein, uh, the the man who the book was named after. He was a uh, he was young. He was interested in the weather from a young age, and he was a very young meteorologist. And he had just taken over in Galveston, and. There's a lot of it's kind of weird with Isaac Klein um, doing the research. He's considered a hero by some, but there are a few people that say he made up a lot of yeah he his story. Embellished how much of an impact he actually had, right? And he certainly was there, and I'm sure he did his best in a very trying circumstance. He lost his family. I mean, yeah, he, he, he kept a few. Yeah, some of them stayed, but he yeah, this was it was a devastating storm for him personally, no question. Yeah. And his uh, his memory of everything that happened, of course, plays a lot into Isaac's storm, as well as other other people's memories of of that night. Because the storm, the height of the storm came in at night, which is the scariest thing. Yeah, storms are bad enough when you can see, 
Mm-hmm. But when you got a hurricane coming in that you were unprepared for at night, that's just terrifying. Yeah, it's a storm. I mean, they knew it was a storm, and then it gets bigger. And it just keeps going. And they just, like, surely it's not going to get any worse than this. And then it just keeps getting worse. Right. It, it was a huge storm, Category 4, which, you know, they go up to Category 5. But honestly, once you get to Category 4, Five isn't a big difference. Not really. <laughs> and especially like, you know, if you're farther inland, the hurricane size, it is going to wane quite a bit before it gets to you. And Galveston, Galveston didn't have that. No, they didn't. And Galveston today, and, and lots of people who, who listen to this all know Galveston today. Galveston today is a much higher place than it was then. Oh, yeah. Galveston was on the sea. It was sea yeah. level. There was no sea wall. There was nothing. Yeah. If you look at like when you're on the beach. And you turn around and see, look at the seawall. You're still higher than the beach was then, mm-hmm. and the seawall goes up pretty high when yeah, you're it's on like the a beach. Fifteen footer or something like that. Yeah, it was. It's one of my favorite things. It was supposed to be seventeen, but when they built it, uh, they built it uh, measured from low tide. Ah, uh, so it's actually like fifteen point eight. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's a seventeen foot wall. No, it's not. Yeah, it's underwater. <laughs> that didn't count. And and the wall the wall has worked. It's done some good things for Galveston. Although Galveston is still well, it's still subject to a massive destruction should a hurricane come in, simply because there's nothing to stop it. It's, yeah. it's right and there. The 1900 hurricane wasn't even the first one that hit it, but it was. You know, if you look at a map, it's got a little inlet, and there's a bay on one side and the gulfs on the other, and it takes a very specific angle for it to catch the full brunt of a storm surge and all that other stuff. This one happened to have hit that perfect angle. Right. They caught both sides of the storm. Yeah. They, they literally got the, the wind coming from one direction. And then when the eye passed, they got it from the other direction. Yeah, so it was like a two for one deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, was it a buy one, get one BOGO? Oh yeah. They got some BOGO hurricane and it was, <laughs> it was not good. Klein later in his memoirs, uh, which he he didn't write the memoirs for quite a while afterwards. I would imagine that it was probably too painful for one thing. A little bit. But he talks about how he rode through the city on a horse, warning everyone that a hurricane was coming. Yes. Uh, you know, like a Paul Revere, but for a hurricane. Yeah. And one of the problems, of of course, is that they could not find a single person to verify that they remember him riding through town. Yeah, because he, he claims to have saved like thousands of lives of people on the beach that got out because he got them some warning. Right. But but it's his word against well not nobodies nobodies yeah there's nobody's calling him a liar but I I think maybe there might be some embellishment there maybe perhaps which again that's kind of human when you survive something so so horrible he did have though one of the things that I, I I found interesting about Isaac Klein was his issues after the storm talking about the information he was given and how the information he was given didn't actually match what he was starting to observe. And uh, we'll get into that in just a second. I want to talk a little bit more about Isaac Klein because he's actually famous for one other thing, and that's after Galveston, he lost his wife. He lost some children. Uh, he did, Three of his daughters survived, though, mm-hmm. and he found them afterwards. I mean, he lost track of them completely. Yeah, during, he was completely by himself. And, th- and that story comes up again and again and again with survivors where – Survivors were separated from their families. Hardly anybody was able to stay with their families during the entire storm because the the island literally came apart. Yeah, um, you have whole towns that are like washing little neighborhoods, just houses moving down several blocks. Yeah, and people uh, the the houses first because the houses were on piers. 
first thing that would happen when the water came in was the houses would just lift off yeah, and then start floating the and then start coming apart. And there's dozens of stories of people surviving because the the porch on their house stayed together mm-hmm. and they'd get on their porch and, and float on like a raft. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is when you're in, when you're in Galveston and you're on market street or on the strand mm-hmm. nowadays, they don't have them, but they used to, that whole area used to be paved with wood, which I think is kind of cool. Wood block pavers. Yeah. Not, not quite like a boardwalk, but it's like actual blocks of wood on the ground. Yes. And they're about the size of a cinder block and they're cut. They, they were cut from hardwood, but the center of hardwood. So you, it, they, and they would soak them with creosote and lay them down. And they, the reason they used these all over the country actually was one, they lasted. They, they actually held up pretty well, Yeah, but they were quiet. So, you know, when you got horses. Yeah, they weren't clickety-clacking around. It was, right. It, it wasn't like a crazy cacophony of it, clip-clops. It muffled it. But uh, one of the earliest things that when the water started coming in for the hurricane, w- well before the hurricane actually arriving in its fury, people started noticing that some of the blocks were popping up on the street. Just yep. <laughs> And it's like, well, what's happening? Well, what was happening was liquefaction. The water was already under them seeping into the sand. And, and underneath the street and, and actually causing the blocks to pop. And I thought that was really interesting because that would have been like, that's odd. This is unusual. <laughs> that water, a lot of that water is going to rise up way before the actual full force is going to get oh, there. Oh, and it, it did. It certainly did. Isaac's brother, he had a brother who he didn't get along with very well. Yeah. Also a meteorologist. Yes, also a meteorologist who thought his brother was a crappy meteorologist. They both thought the other one was crappy at yeah, their job. and this storm pretty much just... That was a death knell for them. Yeah, they, they just stopped talking. Isn't that weird? That's I mean, sad. you would think it would bring brothers together well, yeah, after to all survive. The loss, they were both like, like floating on debris, trying to survive. <laughs> and it's like, no, nah, I ain't talking to you anymore. Yeah, I find that really odd. They must have not liked each other that much to begin with. I would think the idea of the houses basically there was there was the the island for the most part really wasn't there for a while. It was just the ocean. With a bunch of debris mm-hmm. <laughs> floating on it, and all kinds of weird things happened. Uh, if you go to Galveston today, every building that's still standing that was there in 1900 has a plaque on it, and you mm-hmm. can find them. And the most of them are down on the Strand. There, they were well built brick buildings, but even some of those, if you look, you'll see little cracks and stuff. And it because the it was the the debris knocked over as much stuff as the water did. Yeah, that was the dangerous part. Like water coming in is one thing, but when it's bringing a house with it that's a pretty good battering ram and and of course one of the saddest parts of the galveston story is the story of uh saint mary's orphanage oh. when you yes i know right it's just because it, it's uh, it's just horrible, it's never a happy tragic. lead up whenever you're like hey we're talking a hurricane let's talk about that orphanage during this hurricane yeah this, we, this is not happy time you're folks. talking disasters the word orphanage rarely comes yeah, into just to make these bad. kids lives worse well, if you're ever in uh, Galveston and you stay at the Hotel Galvez, I can't. I can't afford that. It's the premier hotel. But it's right on the seawall. Well, Gal- the Hotel Galvez is on the site of what was Sister Mary's Orphanage prior to the Galveston storm. And the nuns at St. Mary's had a great idea so that the kids wouldn't get lost or or separated. Yeah, stay together. They They tied them all together. Yeah, they had like big belts and ropes around their waist. Right. And and linked them all together so that the, and then they would link them to a nun. Yeah, and then they could get through the current unscathed. Right. That, that was, was the theory. That was the plan. The problem was the debris. Mhm. 
once one person got tangled in the debris, pretty much everybody was tangled in the debris. And of the 90 or so children at the orphanage, I think only three survived. Yeah. And they didn't leave. I think they just stayed. Yeah. And the story that they found the three in a tree. Yeah. Uh, the, the story that was the saddest part was after the storm when they had to go in and start finding bodies because it was the island was literally covered in bodies. And you had to take care of that quick. Yeah. Because it was starting to smell. And- but they found a kid partially buried. So they went to pull him up, to dig him up, and he was connected to a rope. So they kept pulling and boop, another kid. And they kept going and boop, another kid. And they discovered all these kids linked together in the debris and realized what had happened. And it's just, it's tragic. It's horribly tragic. Yeah, because these poor nuns are trying to help save all these kids' lives. They were doing their best. pretty much killed them. Yeah, and I don't know, you know, the kids may not have survived anyway, but certainly, certainly with, because the orphanage was one of the first buildings to go. Yeah. It was right there on the beach. Literally, the, uh, they said the orphanage at high tide, it was 10 feet to the, to the water. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, you're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. This tide got significantly higher for this hurricane. That's one of the things that's kind of weird. And Isaac Klein, I will say that he, there's one problem with him saying he, he, you know, saved so many people is years before the hurricane hit, they were, they were talking about putting in a seawall, the very, basically the same seawall they eventually did put in Mm -hmm. same size. And Isaac Klein spoke against the idea saying a major storm would never hit Galveston. Not in a way that would the, where the seawall would be the, barrier that it's meant to be right what are the odds that you're going to get a direct hit at the right angle well (laughs) it happens it's not zero it's not zero (laughs) and as we all know now anywhere on the gulf coast is fair game yeah you got a seawall now though this this is going to cause a big trend in that it does it does and and the one of the weird things about the hurricane that hit galveston too is not necessarily just Isaac Klein. Isaac Klein, weather forecaster extraordinaire, uh, later becomes famous for predicting Mississippi floods that were going to destroy New Orleans because he predicted they would go to like 25 feet in the fl- and he got them to put up levees, sandbag levees, and it prevented the city from going under. And that happened, uh, what was it? I forget the date, but it was only a few years later. And yeah, the the... He, he predicted that the flood of 1903, so three years later, he predicted because of snows up north and water surge that he saw coming down the Mississippi, he said in New Orleans, we need to start putting up levees or we're going to have a flood. And he predicted that the waters would reach 21 feet in the city without any kind of protection. So they began building levees using sandbags and dirt and everything else. The water rose to 20.7 feet. Ooh, that's a solid prediction. <laughs> and uh, he he's credited, no question, credited with saving big chunks of New Orleans at the time. And luckily, for uh, they, they followed his advice later and began building permanent levees. So he's one of the first guys that advocated for levees in New Orleans. And I would imagine a lot of that had to do with not advocating for a seawall in Galveston three years earlier, well, several years earlier. You learn, you learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. Now he was quite popular. Let me wrap up. Uh, let me wrap up, young Mister Klein. As he got older in New Orleans, he had a uh, he had an antique store on St. Peter Street. What? Yeah. And he sold. He collected glass and other antiques, and was seen all the time by the people of New Orleans. And one of my favorite parts of the story of him was 
People would watch him. If they saw him walking down the street with an umbrella, they wouldn't put their wares out on the sidewalk because if he had his umbrella, it was going to rain. Yeah, he was turn of the century Rob Robin. Yes. And uh, hello, friend. But one of the things that was odd that I read, it was he never dusted his shop. Everything was covered in a layer of dust. And apparently he just didn't like to touch things that were dusty. I know. Isn't that weird? A, a weird foible. Yeah. <laughs> he would always be wearing his white smock when he was uh when he was in his shop. And people apparently, you know, they, they enjoyed his company and he was a he was a well liked individual in New Orleans down in the French Quarter. And um, you know, he uh he lived his life and and went on and eventually, you know, passed away like people are are, you know, apt to do. Yeah, he he got wicked old. I think he died in the fifties. Yeah, he, like right he, before Audrey hit, like he was gone. <laughs> yeah, Audrey, another fun story. So that's Klein, but Klein, uh, there was a somebody at the Galveston office that that left, and that guy is actually somebody that's kind of interesting. Uh, his his name is uh, Willis Moore. Willis Moore, if you look him up, if you look up the history of the Weather Bureau, Willis Moore, you might think he's like this amazing uh, weather guy who did so much for the people of the United States by setting up weather forecasting offices and everything else. But he may have been the reason that the people of Galveston had no idea a storm was coming. Yeah. And it, and it's kind of an interesting thing if you're into history at all. And it's the fact that we had just come out of the Spanish American war and Cuba. Well, Cuba had developed a reputation as being a place that could actually predict these storms. I mean, let's face it, Cuba gets hit by these things all the time. And their weather forecasting ability had come down from the Jesuits of all people. The Catholic Jesuits in Cuba kind of kind of just took over the idea of watching the skies and learning what the clouds look like because you you have certain patterns that always precede a hurricane or a low pressure system. Mm-hmm. And they got very very good at predicting these things and also knowing where they were going and that's that's key here. See the see the factors that are going to steer them where they're going to go. <laughs> and uh there's a man known as the he's known as Father Hurricane. His name was Benito Vienes and he lived in Havana and for a long while he was the guy that understood hurricanes better than anybody anywhere. He and and his predictions were used by uh people in in you know the business of shipping even his predictions were often used in the United States up until the Spanish American War uh, by the Spanish American War he passes away and they another person takes over but the problem was Willis Moore didn't trust the Cubans and he cut off information that was leaving Cuba and pulled up normally People in Galveston could get information directly from Cuba. Mm-hmm. What Willis Moore did is he made it so that all the tropical information coming out of Cuba had to go to Washington first. And get filtered by the Weather Bureau. Right. And then disseminated by the Weather Bureau, which in 1900 took time. Yeah, a little bit. Time you don't have. In Cuba, at the time, this was all transpiring the as the hurricane was building because when it hit cuba it was just a low pressure system it wasn't a fully formed hurricane yet um by the time it left cuba it was a baby hurricane mm-hmm. and they were <laughs> predicting that it was going to go up like the atlantic right willis board well uh, willis moore was of the school of the weather bureau that believed all hurricanes did a button hook when they hit the gulf yep straight up north yeah it would just curve and so he he sent out um 
he actually, there's a communique. You can find it on online even still. A communique to Gulf Coast interests that a severe storm had left Cuba and was on its way to Florida. Yep. The Cuban weather guys were like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's still going west. And it's going to stay in that Gulf. And it's in the Gulf and it's going to go west. It's still going west. And they could look at the clouds and know the direction it was headed. And Willis Moore would have none of it because in his view, Cubans were backwards. They couldn't possibly be as good at predicting the weather as Americans. They're dramatic. They always exaggerate and say stuff's a hurricane when it's not. It's just a storm. <laughs> you don't use the word hurricane. That'll scare people. They uh, they had an observatory in Cuba that had been there since 1858. Uh, it's actually still there. It's just because it was a Jesuit facility, needless to say, when Castro took over, it was no longer a Jesuit facility. Nah. Yeah, those communists, huh? But the fact is that Willis Moore stuck his big giant foot in and uh, the Cuban forecasting was squashed. It just didn't happen. Moore also banned certain words from weather reports from Cuba. This is my favorite. He banned the words hurricane. Yeah, you don't need that one. Cyclone. Nope. And tornado. Of course. We can't have that. He uh, he assigned Colonel Henry Dunwoody, <laughs> an officer from the Signal Corps, to the Bureau's Caribbean weather station. Dunwoody had made his name by scoffing at the value of meteorological science in making predictions because predictions of weather were a matter of divination. Yes, this is witchcraft. It's, it's God. Predicting the storms is it's just the act of God. Look, humans. You cannot possibly predict these things. It's an act of God. Yay. Yep. We have no other <laughs> no other natural patterns emerge. To the Americans, Cuban forecasts seemed hysterical, despite their extraordinary accuracy. I love that. Don't you just love that? Um, and he also believed that the Cubans, and I love this quote, lacked the Yankee grit and know-how that was making America a great leader on the world stage. Why does that sound like it might work today? Man, because you had... <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt on the rise. It was a everyone knows Cubans can't predict the weather. <laughs> they make predictions of weather you can't even believe. Believe me. They also, and this is another one, uh, hired a guy uh, and sent him uh, to uh, Cuba to help with the forecasting. Named William Stockman. He was a veteran of the Weather Bureau. Stockman set up shop in Havana and took charge of all U.S. weather stations. In one of his early reports, Stockman simply eradicated the entire history of the Cuban weather networks. That's right. They had a network. He told Moore that Cubans had never heard of forecasting. <laughs> the locals were very conservative, Stockman reported, and forecasting the approach of storms was a most radical change that would not have happened with such conservative people. It was especially important, Stockman advised, that the Bureau not be guilty of causing Unnecessary alarm amongst the natives. Wow. <laughs> My final thing about the Cuban weather stations is Stockman said that the Cubans had secretly been piggybacking on U.S. forecasts. He claimed that agents in New Orleans would get copies of daily weather maps coming out of Washington, then send the maps by undersea telegraph to Havana then the Cubans would use that information to forecast something that he claimed had already been forecast. By the good old people in Washington. <laughs> That's the right people. The ones in Washington are the right ones. They're always correct. Not the Cubans. Yeah. If you live in Washington, you're automatically right. That's how that works. Especially when it comes to predicting hurricanes. 
In late August of 1900, Moore decided to deal once and for all with the Cuban annoyances. Uh, Hurricane season was underway. He shut down all communication between Cuban weathermen and the people of the United States. He actually did, too. He went and shut down any kind of broadcasting ability of local Cuban weather stations that people in Florida and ships at sea would pick up. And that was kind of how they kept each other informed. It was a kind of an ad hoc network, really. Yeah. Fortunately for Moore, the U.S. War Department was in control of Cuba's government-owned telegraph lines. So guess what? <laughs> Shut them down. Yep. We don't need that information. Yeah, they disconnected the uh, Cuban weather stations and basically more blocked all forecasts that might have warned the people of Galveston. And so 6 a.m. Thursday, September 6th, it's a couple days before the storm, before Isaac's storm, and it was 80 degrees, light winds, everything was beautiful. 8 a.m., the Bureau confirmed the prediction it had telegraphed to Galveston the day before, said, this storm is not a hurricane. That's what Moore said. And he also said, you could use the word as long as you put not in front of it. So he was okay. He gave him permission to use the word hurricane, but the word not had to be in front of it. So it was a not hurricane. It was not. The course of this non-hurricane would not affect Galveston, Moore said. The storm would instead go into the classic recurve and head north towards Florida. Now, I should tell you that people in Florida who were told this massive storm was coming were kind of surprised when nothing happened. Nothing. Nothing at all. Just went and took a nice steam bath in the Gulf. People in Florida began telegraphing the Weather Bureau saying, uh, we were told there was going to be a storm. Yeah, that, that looks like the sun to me. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing seems to be happening. And suddenly, at some point, it, my favorite was fishermen in New Jersey, in New Jersey, who were worried about a storm coming up the coast, telegraphed more and more cabled back. Not safe to leave nets in after tonight. Storm on the way. Now, it was already clear that there was no storm on the way, but he's still telling people, nope, nope. It's storm, coming. Storm's coming. It's going north. They develop out of sunshine. <laughs> he he kind of blew it. <laughs> the uh, storm instead was, of course, heading west. One of the first people, or I should say one of the first places that you noticed uh, a massive storm heading uh, west was a ship by the uh, name of Louisiana. Yeah, those poor guys. They rode through it. Yep. <laughs> Boy, did they. Drop anchor and see what happens. Isn't that amazing? God. Can you imagine? imagine the noise on that freaking boat? Oh, my God. Not to mention the stench from all the people who pooped themselves. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, because from what I hear, this was a, a harrowing experience. <laughs> well, the ship reported winds of 120 miles per hour. That's not that bad. So imagine yourself on a, you know, not a ship. I mean, it wasn't a huge ship. This is not like some kind of massive like ocean liner. Yeah. Yeah, it was, this it was, was a Navy ship. Yeah, and uh, 120 miles per hour. <laughs> It would have been a lot of throw so up. You got rain, rain hitting your metal hull at 120 miles an hour. Yeah, everything hurts at 120 miles per hour. Yep. And in during the storm in Galveston, there are witnesses who claim they saw bricks, actual bricks, flying, flying through the, the air, flying off buildings. Yeah. Egad. Oh yeah. Bricks. My, you know what the weirdest thing about Galveston? Though, when when you read Isaac Storm, did you find it weird that so many people were snake bit? Well, yeah. Was, in trees. I didn't think about that being a problem because the snakes are also trying to get, I don't know it's a problem like when it rains around here, yeah, you'll get a lot of ants around your house. Yeah. But I never think of the 
when everything is flooded, like you'll have thousands of frogs and wind picking up snakes and throwing snakes into trees. Yes. You climb up the tree, like yeah, I'm good, but you forget about that big massive rattlesnake nest that they're also trying to get out of the weather. <laughs> People are dying of snake bites like crazy in trees. And I was researching uh, the Rosenberg f- stuff that I could find and the story of finding bodies that were in no way damaged at all. Yep. And they couldn't figure out what killed them. And, and they then they'd, they'd the find the puncture bites. marks yep. and they'd be dead. And I, I can't, it'd be the worst thing in the world. I, I would have survived the worst natural disaster in history, except I got in a tree and a snake bit me. Yeah. You do like, Hurricane 101, whenever the flooding is a big deal, you go to high ground, and the snakes got that same message. So that's something that maybe they need to add to hurricane preparedness things, snake bite kits. Yeah. <laughs> Look, if it's bad enough, you climb a tree. Although I don't know how we'd climb these trees here. They're all just telephone poles with limbs. Yeah, these things would probably not be there to be climbed. Yeah, the natural vegetation is nearly gone in this area. Mm-hmm. Instead, they brought in these, again, Telephone poles with limbs <laughs> or, or sweet gum trees. And uh, oh, I'm not climbing that either. <laughs> the simple fact is that Galveston could have known this was coming. People could have gotten inland if there hadn't been so much government bureaucracy preventing it from happening. That's yeah. the saddest part. A storm was politicized. It's ridiculous when something that's natural, naturally occurring gets politicized. Luckily, we live in a time where nothing like that could ever happen. No, we have truth always. Everything that is disseminated to us is like, the truth. Like, imagine if there was like, I don't know, imagine if there was like a pandemic. And like an got, invisible enemy. And it got politicized. Whew. That'd be crazy. That would be nuts. China. <laughs> the China. It's from China. The China virus. China. Countries you wouldn't even believe. Great countries. <laughs> countries. China. They can't predict the weather, though. No. <laughs> what do they know about virology? The storm says 50 people sought refuge in Klein's house during this storm. And uh, I was looking for this a minute ago. All but 18 were hurled into eternity. That's how it's. That's dramatic language. I know. That's d- directly from his book. I'll give him all the credit because yeah. I, I, I wished I could write like that. Yeah, that ain't me. Hurled into eternity. Well, I mean, I, I know those words. I just would never put them in the same order, I no, guess. So like died. Yeah, they died. died. His wife, Clara, who was pregnant with the couple's fourth child. uh, The client's other three daughters survived. 6,000 dead in the city. Four to 6,000 more on the island itself. Property damage at the time was $30 million. Today, that's pushing a billion. Yeah. Probably even more so. It changed the city, obviously, forever because they had to raise the entire island which is kind of fun, actually, when you start realizing how much higher the city is today. Uh, they used, and this is the the stunning thing, they used screw jacks to lift every surviving building. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's it, some engineering right there. Yes, it absolutely is. The city, it's, or the island itself, is about 17 feet higher than it was at the time of the Great Storm. And that's kind of cool. So when you're on seawall, when you're at the seawall, now in Galveston, you are standing almost 17 feet higher than you would have been prior to 1900 mm-hmm. and the rest of the city as well. And, and the way they did it was they just used fill. They just dredged the, the yeah, Galveston channel out some stuff and just blew it under there, blew the sand in, in uh, and used dikes to keep it from uh, the escaping and let the, let the water seep out. And you had new, new, well, new land. Yep. There's a few places and it's not 17 feet throughout the entire island. Some places it's less. 
uh, there's a spot and I, it's, it's kind of uh, south along the island, but there's a fence. And we were told by a, a tour guide guy that the fence itself is actually a seven foot tall fence. You can see like a foot of it. Wow. The rest is underground, <laughs> huh. which I thought was kind of cool. That happens a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Over time. Raise this, raise the thing. And the train, that was the other story that was bizarre. Oh, man. The train that parked on the Bolivar Peninsula. Oh, yeah. And the people went to the lighthouse to try to escape it. Yeah. and the But a lot of people stayed on the train. Yeah. They're like, no, we're going to risk it. We're going to head back out of here. And and, and the, the storm surge went over the top of the train. I mean, yeah, it was it deeper than the train. Off the track. So all those people died. Yep. Uh, this was also uh, the Galveston storm. One of the little known things was Clara Barton, the famous nurse. She was 78 years old. She was in New York, I believe, and they asked her to go to Galveston to help set up recovery. Yeah. And she agreed to do it at 78. 78. Can you imagine that? 78 back then, that's like 143 now. That's it's pretty old. It's nuts. Um, if you get online, and I'll, I'm going to put some links on the website. If you go to show notes, I'm going to put a couple links to go look at some of the pictures from the damage of Galveston. It's it's stunning. The The people had to... The all of the things they had to do after the storm first was bodies. Yeah. You got to dispose of that stuff. And there, there's so much rubble and these people are buried under sand and they're washed miles down the shore. Well, one of the first things they thought they would do, and it was kind of, kind of hideous, but they piled a, uh, a barge with bodies, took them out into the Gulf and dumped them. Yeah. They buried them at sea. It was what the, (laughs) the plan was. That was the plan. The problem was, and not to get too graphic about it, but people kind of turn into uh, uh, gas-filled balloons. Yeah, they weren't they weren't sufficiently weighted to compensate <laughs> yeah. for the decomposition gases. So they returned. They did. They, they were to bury them more than once. Yes. Eventually, they realized that the only way to deal with it and to keep the disease from spreading as much as it was going to spread was to burn the bodies. And there were piles of bodies being burned all over the island. Uh, it gave kids who survived, it gave them nightmares for years. Yeah. And I can imagine. And, and of course, even Clara Barton remarked in her memoirs of the whole thing, the, uh, the stench on the, in the Island was just God awful. The, the fact that the, the Island even survived is, is kind of amazing. Uh, Clara Barton, when she showed up, she was the president of the red cross at the time. It was through her appeals that they were able to get donations sent from all over the country to help the people of Galveston. And surprisingly, Galveston recovered at least reasonably quick for the time. The newspaper never even stopped printing. That was one of those really wild things. The, yeah. the day after the storm, the newspaper put out an edition. Wow. Yeah. It was two day it was a two day edition, mm-hmm. front and back, but and it was really just a list of the dead that they knew yeah, so that's all far. they had room for. And yeah, and it, it is horrible. The, uh, the other thing that came out of the Galveston storm was city government changed. And that this is actually a legacy that most people don't realize of the Galveston. The Galveston city government, they couldn't get anything done. They were having all kinds of problems. So they set up a commission style of government. And in fact, you still study that in American history classes today, or, or civics classes really mm-hmm. more so. But they created a, a government where you had groups of commissioners who were responsible for one aspect of government. And this became a model for governments across the country. That's the legacy of Galveston. Galveston was, as a major port city, was done. Yeah. Um, this actually probably caused quite a bit of the growth in Houston. You go inland and the hurricanes really aren't going to be that big of a threat, at least until Harvey. But Well, yeah, but Harvey was really a flood. More, I mean, it yeah. wasn't the wind that knocked it down. 
the reason Galveston just was done as a, as a port, it wasn't because it wasn't a good location. It was because it was so easily threatened. Yeah. You could build all this stuff up and it could just get wiped out again. The Galveston storm is still kind of in the minds of people in Texas. That's how big it was because I think part of it was in, it was the, in, in Eric Larson's book, there was the ship captain who came up to Galveston after the storm the next day. And he can't find Galveston. He can't see it. Yeah, nothing looks the same at all. All the buildings are moved or flattened. Or gone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he said it was just a pile of wood debris. Mm-hmm. And if you see the pictures, and I'll, again, I'll put up the link on the website, that's what it is. It's literally just debris and occasional house that's crooked. Yeah. If you, if you were lucky, your house just kind of fell over. Yeah, if you were lucky. And washed down the street, you know. Didn't get completely busted up. Yeah, you had the story of the woman who was punching holes. They would go up each floor, and she'd punch holes in the floor so the house wouldn't lift off the piers. Yeah, they're cutting it big holes in it. With it didn't axes. help. No. Eventually, the, the thought process was that it would just fill up with water instead of instead floating of it down. And uh, they, yeah, well, they tried. I know it's kind of yeah, that's just horribly sad. And uh, so that's that's the uh, story of Galveston. While we wait to see if uh, uh, Marco and Laura come to get us. I've got one final thing. And I think in fact, normally I, when I wrap up the podcast, I wrap it up with the same little tune that I begin it with. And today we're going to, we're going to leave while another tune is playing. And it's a tune about the Galveston storm. It was written later, but the people that, that wrote the, or the man that wrote this, the song, and who knows if he actually wrote it or if he copied it or Whatever, when you're getting into stuff back in the early 1900s, it's kind of hard to say. But uh, the song is called Wasn't That a Mighty Storm. It's actually been covered by several people. But the person who is credited with the song is a guy by the name of Sin Killer Griffin. That's a good moniker. Isn't that a good name? I like that. He was a reverend that was recorded by the Lomaxes. And if you don't know what the Lomaxes were, we were talking earlier. I think that's a story we may have to do. Alan and John Lomax are famous for being commissioned by the Library of Congress to go across the country recording all kinds of things, but especially music that was in danger of disappearing. It's where we get a lot of the earliest bluegrass music, a lot of the earliest blues music from the blues masters. They did a lot of old Cajun music. A lot of old Cajun music was recorded that we would have lost. The Lomaxes are probably the greatest historians of American music of anybody out there because without them we would we just wouldn't have it. And you know, thank God they were they were set out. Thank, well, thank God somebody in government actually understood the importance of getting this stuff. Yeah. Cuz rarely do people in government seem to think ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and not not with something as, you know, abstract as the arts. Yeah. And so anyway, the Lomax is uh went to a prison that's about 20 miles away from Galveston in the 1933 and found a church, a church service was going on and the Reverend was John L Griffin, but he was much better known as sin killer Griffin who was in prison. Good name for a preacher. Yeah. Great name for a preacher. And he was in prison. This is really all they know about him is this song and why he was in prison. And even that's, you know, 90%, but supposedly he was arrested because he was collecting weapons and money so he could outfit a boat with a lot of African-Americans and head back to Africa and take it back. Yes. To get rid of the the, the colonizers of Africa. Sort of a, well, almost like a, a Marcus Garvey kind of thing. Yeah. And apparently he had collected enough weapons and the fact that he was black made him, you know, 
dangerous and scary at that time. Very scary. And you know, you can't back then, especially during Jim Crow, you you can't be having you can't be having your your African American folk collecting weapons. No, it smells like an uprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that would have certainly been very upsetting to people back then. But anyway, the Lomaxes went to Darrington Prison at Sandy Point, uh, not too far from Gallison, and they recorded uh, their spiritual that they were doing. Wasn't it a mighty storm? So before we before we close it up here, got anything to add today? Any 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 hopes for this week? I'm hoping these hurricanes don't actually cause any major damage. Hopefully it's one of those things that you're thinking, eh, it's probably just going to blow over. I would like for that to actually happen. we got enough on our plate right now. We, Me too. Uh, I, I said the exact same thing to my wife this morning. Uh, the 2020, and I, I can't even use the term that I use, but it was a, it was a great um, buggering. So yeah. I think 2020 is, is the great buggering of the United States. We, we've got enough. We've got enough on our plates. First of all, you know, we got the plague and all the fun that goes with it. Mm-hmm. We've got an election that is never fun, never fun, but even less so this time around anger everywhere. We've got protests. We've got cities on fire. California's burning. Big uh, time. And now we've got two hurricanes coming and to top it all off. Love bugs. Mm. Which, they smell. Yeah. I mean, when you get right down to it, that's probably the worst thing. Yeah. The love They're bugs. annoying. They're just going to get you. <laughs> yeah, at least they don't bite. But anyway, so if you got a, a – I didn't come up with a good question. I was hoping I'd get a question in my head. We, we need a question. Brian, come up with a question for a phone call. Man, what was your experience with the hurricane that has yet to hit but will have hit by the time you hear this? Yes. Excellent. Well done. That's almost like forecasting. It's scary. So there you go. Please give us a call at 337-502-9011 and tell us how you weathered the double hurricane of 2020, otherwise known as the year of the great buggering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how? And the website, and I'll put some show notes up about Eric Larson's book, and you need to read it. In fact, that's your assignment this week. Read Eric Larson's book, Isaac's Storm. That is your assignment for the week. I'll be expecting a book report next week from all of you. The website, www.longintheboot.com. Email longintheboot at gmail.com. And I just gave you the phone number. And if you didn't write it down, shame on you. But go back and listen to another podcast. I'll say it again, I'm sure. And I want to appreciate everybody who's been listening. I got a lot of subscription. People subscribed this week, actually. Well, my little numbers went up. All right. Uh, yeah, I kind of like that. Uh, nothing huge, but I'm I'm appreciative of every single person that listens to Long in the Boot. It's kind of fun doing it. And I certainly missed radio. That's for darn sure. <laughs> and we're going to go out with Sin Killer Griffin and a bunch of other guys at church doing wasn't that a mighty storm? Y'all take care, and hopefully everybody will be fine, and we'll see how everything went on the next Long in the Boot. Look them in the face, wasn't that a mighty song?